You are listening to my top 10 TV podcast. You can find this on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, it's another episode of my top 10 TV podcast, the podcast equivalent of a star bar. You think it's okay until it disappeared and then you realise you really miss them and wish they were back. Anyway, on this episode we have a guest who really knows his TV onions. No, not Monty Don. He's the brilliant host of the media podcast and I can truly say his top ten is exactly why I wanted to do this in the first place. From halcyon tinted old favourites to smack bang up to date modern classic, it's the one and only Matt Deegan. So uh, we shall crack on with your top 10. And if you want to give me your number 10. Number 10 is Crackerjack. Excellent. And give us some reasons why. So uh, when I was thinking about TV shows that I liked, uh, this one popped into my head. It was probably the first TV show that I can remember, Mm. uh, remember watching. Um, when, When I grew up, my parents had a hotel. Uh, And so they they worked really hard and were really busy. Um, And I guess Crackerjack was on about five o'clock. Five past uh, five. And uh, yes, and um, would uh, would probably kind of keep me um, entertained until dinner. Uh, I remember loving Stu Francis. So Crackjack had a number of different presenters. Uh, My era is the early 80s. Uh, So he was sort of the last one before um, it then got rebooted by Sam and Mark in the last few years. Um, And I just know what it was that was about him. I think the idea that children were on it was exciting. I would have been between, I looked it up, I would have been between two and five. So like, I I mean, it's kind of crazy that I can remember that far back. I wouldn't have been able to hold any cabbages, which was a key part of of Cracker Jack. Um, But I I think I just love the idea of, of being able to be on there. And it was kind of anarchic and different um, and the presenter was quite strange. A guy called Stu Francis Bolton uh, lad sort of was a kind of end of the peer comedian and ended up doing kids telly, which is all quite bizarre. He also released a single uh, based on his slightly strange catchphrase, Ooh, I could crush a grape, yes. which I think was the first record that I bought as well um, uh, as a vinyl, as a single vinyl. Uh, and yeah, so um I think Cracker Jack was very much of my sort of formative years. Stu Francis, he did spawn quite a few catchphrases that kind of became his thing. There was, I could, I could wrestle an action man. I could jump off a doll's house. But yeah, all of those catchphrases were were all in the song. I think like even, uh, oh, I could pop a balloon. Which <laughs> doesn't sound like, you know, the, the, the best of the catchphrases. No. Also, I mean, there's something kind of interesting about it. Sort of campish guy, um, sort of the 70s and 80s television who loved a camp presenter yeah. and um he loved a kind of a gay presenter without without saying it. i'm not sure if he was or not but um sort of very of of that of that moment so i could see a producer kind of picking him mm. and going oh yes he's in line with uh, someone that pre- present the generation game or, or something like that I and mean, it probably would have been larry grayson at the time i think mm. Mm. so yeah quite quite sort of similar and i think what why cracker jack worked because it was kind of sort of that multi-format because it had sketches, it had, you know, kind of little sort of breakaway items. It had returning sort of episodic things as well. Um, and yeah, I think absolutely, because was it Cracker Jack Pencil? Was that was that the kind of yes, one Jack of the prizes? Pencil, uh, also, there was a disproportionate amount of The Great Soprendo, uh, a sort of chubby, uh, overweight comedian, who I think was the ex-husband of Victoria Wood. Victoria Wood, yes. And, um, and The Crankies. That was the, yes. the core of my childhood. yes. And I'm still, still to this day, I remember being absolutely floored when my parents told me that it it wasn't a little boy. It just, it just, it just didn't make sense to me. And my world came crashing down. 
also the fact that they were husband and wife. Yes. Which, uh, very strange. <laughs> if, you, if you've never come across the Crankies, that really is a YouTube Wikipedia black hole you can get into. But Krakizak, it's a fantastic start to your number 10. So uh, thank you for that. So uh, we'll move on to your number nine. Yeah, so this is sort of connected, really. I mean, all the first few are kind of connected. So at mm. nine, it's Game for a Laugh which I suppose is a slightly more grown-up version of Cracker Jack. Um, And again, this was sort of uh, really highlighted my love of sort of shiny floor entertainment. Um, And in this, you had sort of four presenters uh, who would basically do sort of pranks and gags um, I think precursor of a, a lot that, that came after it. Sort yeah. of the int- it was also the introduction of Jeremy Beadle, um, uh, but also had you had Henry Kelly uh, and Matthew Kelly. I think I, I probably like the idea of you know it's adults doing childlike things. Yes, um, and uh, and yeah, being very excited by um, uh, you know some you know, Jeremy Beadle prank, which obviously he went on to do with with Beatles about and you mm-hmm. framed and things like that. Um, I thought that was, that was always quite exciting. Yeah, but it was kind of, as you say, a strange bedfellows, um, all four of them, because Matthew Kelly was, he was kind of a sort of human Muppet puppet. He was, I mean, he was brilliant. He was effusive. He was kind of, he had an addictive kind of personality, you you, you know, and, and can, was it, I cannot remember the lady's name, Sarah somebody, I think was the... Um... Yeah, so Sarah Kennedy, I think initially she'd been like a newsreader for Radio 1, uh, obviously, she went on to present um, the early breakfast show uh, on Radio Two, hmm. um, and I think she did. A bit, she, I think she did a bit of ITV game shows as well, which is probably why she ended up uh, uh, on Game for Game for Game for a Laugh, which was a yeah. ITV show. Um, so yeah, so very kind of strange bunch of people um, do, doing strange things. Also, it had uh, that thing which a lot of eighties sort of shows had, um, uh, which was a catchphrase, hmm. which was the. Uh, we're watching us watching you, you watching, watching us watching you, you. <laughs> again very very strange but yeah. um uh that that just at the time just seemed seemed to me just a really exciting uh program to watch yeah they i mean they they i'm going to i'm going to say the polite word they borrowed but to be perfectly honest they stole an awful lot of things that had already happened they took an awful lot of ideas from candid camera uh, because that was a massive hit and basically they kind of you know sort of put four presenters together and just did it was almost like sort of they they decided right who would be good at this who's good at this and then they, they kind of apportioned the different bits about but i just remember it being very excitable um and it was kind of at the time so probably seven o'clock saturday evening so it was mm-hmm. absolutely prime time you kind of you, you'd all as a family you'd probably finished your meal by then so you sat down in front of that and it was just, yeah for me it was again another kind of you know window into this w- wonderful world that eventually i knew i wanted to become part of so again it's a, a good part of my childhood as well uh, and you talk about sort of stealing ideas i mean there's definitely uh, a through line of thieving from these from these saturday night shows yeah uh, kind of my, my number eight choice is noel's house party <laughs> um and uh i, can, I guess I, I was getting a little bit older the the shows were evolving i mean noel had had um an interesting kind of TV career. Yeah. Uh, obviously, it had a huge amount of success on the Radio One Breakfast Show, and I think people kind of forget how how popular he, he was at that yeah. point, really yeah. at the top of his game. Um, went to do kids TV with with Swap Shop yeah. again a hit, and, and Swap Shop sort of invented sort of Saturday morning TV, absolutely, uh, yeah. and there really wasn't anything before. So you kind of took this this guy that everybody knew um, and put it in a you know, again, it's quite a strange format, the idea of swapping things, as they realised quite quickly that wasn't really the core of it, and this no. is big magazine shows. I think format-wise, again, sort of fascinating, this combination of uh, 
games or sketches uh, set in a house uh, and the storyline of Crinkly Bottom and the people from Crinkly Bottom. I mean, kind of it's a genius format because, you know, knocks at the door, guests can come in as themselves or they can come in as characters from the village. Yeah. Um, obviously, the, the big one that, that really sticks in people's minds is NTV, this idea mm-hmm. to, to go live to people's households. And I think that was, again, as a, a young a young lad growing up, sort of obsessed with television and maybe being on television or being kind of connected to that world. The idea that suddenly Noel could be in your living room, I yeah. thought was amazing. So I always liked it when they got the the best of Noel. I thought gotchas were great. Obviously the work and effort that they'd, they'd kind of put into those. Um, and he it sort of gets, I mean, I think he's become a little bit more of a joke, sadly, in the last few years, but clearly like a massive television buff himself. Mm. Um, really focused, which I'm sure was massively annoying to maybe some of the people he worked with on the network. Um, but you could sort of see it later on in Deal or No Deal, you know, taking a game where they open some boxes yeah. uh, and turning that into like a daily 45-minute really kind yeah. of interesting... Um, no, uh, just to, to pick up on a couple of the points that you made there, because um, I think back in the day, from his kind of swap shop days all the way through to the end of um, Noel's House Party, he, he was one of the best people presenters in the business he was he was top of his game and as good as anybody sort of on itv because the number of shows itv put up against now noel's house party things like blind date and gladiators you know massive shows big budgets and none of them ever could touch noel's house party it was always at the top of the ratings each time and you're right he was he's he was very good him and his team I think it was unique, unique broadcasting, mm. I think. Um, yes. We're just very good at coming up with ideas that kind of work, you know, as you say, gotchas, NTV, all of that kind of stuff. I mean, even down to, now I wasn't a fan when they did it, but even when they got down to like the gunge tank, mm. it just, it was, it, you know, because I, I think us being of that age where we saw lots of gunge in kids' television, I felt like for me, it, it, it felt a bit retrogressive, but again, it was just a ridiculously popular part of that show. And I think that was also part of its brilliance is there was probably 10 or 12 different items in each program. So you never really had to concentrate too long on each bit. And if you didn't like a bit, it would be over in a couple of minutes. I think that's, well, that was his genius. I mean, it's one of those things, especially if you're maybe a little bit younger than we are, go and watch a whole episode on YouTube. So there's a lot that's up there. And what they've kind of squeezed into a live, you know, hour long show was amazing. Mm. And and also, I mean, this is a slight sort of spin-off from that. He used to do a lot of Christmas day broadcasting. He did? Yeah. And I always, I remember watching that this big live thing. It was from BT Tower. Mm. They'd have people taking donations at telecom tower uh but um the idea of making everybody work on christmas day i was just think that's yeah. amazing isn't yeah. it all these like millions of ob's and all these all these different things going on so we clearly loved uh what he was doing and you could really you could really see in that show but i think that also shows the power that he had at the time because if you look at christmas day now it's TV is just wallpaper it's moving wallpaper while people do their stuff open presents you know see the family but Actually, Noel did have appointment to view television on Christmas morning because I remember, you know, growing up that, you know, my parents would go, oh, you know, because I think that was it called Noel's Christmas presents or something like that. Mm. And it basically would do 12 presents for 12, you know, uh, worthy causes. And we would kind of stop and watch that for an hour and a half or, or however long it was. And then that finished, you go, right, okay, Christmas Day carries on. So he kind of had did have that power where he could stop Christmas in its tracks. Yes, I mean a, a true kind of superstar at that time. I think I think Noel Southwark hit like thirteen million to fourteen million viewers on a, on a Saturday night, yeah, uh, which was sort of a kind of ph- a phenomenal, a kind of phenomenal achievement. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Which And then brings us smack up to date uh, with your number seven choice. Yeah, so um, Anton Deck's Saturday Night Takeaway. I mean, it's such a ripoff of Noel's House Party. <laughs> I mean, if, if, you re- if, you, if, you look at, if you look at all the elements, oh, yeah. my God, they've pretty much stolen everything. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, fundamentally, what an amazing relationship Anton Deck have. Um, you know, brilliant broadcasters, brilliant presenters. They can do comedy. They can do drama. They can do... Uh, live television they can do it all going wrong but still but still stare down the barrel and, and yep. do what they need they can fill they can sing they can dance and um uh you sort of then add on the 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 segments that they know worked from noel's house but i think there's probably a, a bit of that just going hey all the, these things are good hmm. um and then uh, add on extra stuff th- uh, themselves and um, what i always find amazing about Saturday Night Takeaway, and kind of the reason I think it's coming to an end, is they basically work on it nine months a year. There's so yeah. much pre pre recording elements, so much stuff going on all the time that they have to do. Hmm. And then I think in the week of broadcast, where they're in a song and dance number or they're they're doing a challenge, you know, they're learning how to do all those things or or learning a routine and to throw themselves into everything. You know, the, to take these two people who have at the top of their game and to find that much time for them obviously it helps it's their production company it's that or sort of partly their production company and um and their names above the door obviously they're paid exceptionally well by itp um for it yeah uh but to choose to put that commitment in and they could still easily probably do saturday night takeaway without having to do as much themselves yes um but um they clearly sort of love doing it and, and want it to be the best that it can clearly super professionals and probably in the sort of noel edmund's mold mm. interestingly in one of their sort of little storyline uh drama bits that they add into to saturday night takeaway they had noel as the villain one year which was <laughs> quite which was quite a nice kind of callback to them a knowing wink it's very meta. Where, yeah where quite a lot of um uh, Saturday night takeaway came. From. Yeah, no, I, 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 t- I totally agree, and I'm, I'm very pleased that it's in your list. You, you're the first one to to actually include it in 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 any top ten. Um, and I think from from I, I worked very briefly with Anton Deck on a an ITV football based quiz show called We're On Our Way to Wembley, and it lasted one season. Um, but even then, it was probably just before they'd been taken up by ITV, probably in their Channel Four days. So we were quite lucky to get them as team captains, but they were just on it. And they kind of wanted to know the questions before because they wanted to know what line was going to be funnier. And I would, I, I actually, you know, sat with them in a room and we kind of wrote down what what would be the best responses, kind of thing. Um, and they were, they, yeah, they were, they were just brilliant. You know, even now, Saturday Night Takeaway. I think it probably has come to the end of its run because it yes. has been a long time. Um, but they are brilliant, and you know, kind of just again. The, the people they surround themselves with. I mean, I think they've done very well since, obviously, the, the demise of Ed Forsdick, who, who really did mm. drive that show. And as a big showrunner, I worked on The Big Breakfast and he worked on that mm. as well. And I know what a formidable formidable character he was. And he would have got extracted every single bit of energy and, and you know, kind of enjoyment out of them. Um, but, you know, kind of, you know, Stephen Mulhern has been able to forge a brilliant career, basically off the support of Anton Deck, just because they he's, he's clearly cut from the same cloth and I think works very hard as well. So no, I think it's a it's it's a brilliant inclusion in the top ten because it it not only gives a nod to a style of programmes that I think the UK is very good at, but I think probably two of the strongest presenting couple that we've had for a very long time. Um, and a, a bit of a gear change now for your next show. Uh, so yeah. please yeah, do, do 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 tell us more. So at six, this is Press Gangs. This is the ITV Kids Show um, uh, from the 
uh, from the 80s and early 90s. Press gang. So I was definitely a CBBC ho- uh, household. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of people like my parents didn't allow me to watch ITV. There was none of that I could w- watch what what I liked. Um, but I was just I was just a CBBC uh, home. I think um, you were it, you were either Tiswas or your Swap Shop, especially at that age. That was that was the kind of de- defining sort of metric of what you watched. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, press gang definitely keys into you know an, av- an average job in the media and with the media podcast. Obviously, we talk about media all the time. My dad was working at a local newspaper probably at this point, so I was a, a bit a bit interested in that. Um, and so this was a, a, a kids drama series where um, some people, some kids uh, ran a school newspaper uh, as a, like a junior version of the Gazette. And it was called the Junior Gazette. Uh, and a load of kids from school would, would make this paper every week. And that I just thought, oh, that's so amazing, isn't it? That you get to sort of do a grown up job. You put out this paper mm-hmm. living in a, a sort of proper newspaper environment. Um, and uh, amazing kind of people who were sort of involved with it. So um, main main editor was Julia Sawala. Uh, Dexter Fletcher with slightly dodgy American accents <laughs> was uh, her beau uh, in it. Mm-hmm. Um, Lucy Benjamin, who went on to EastEnders, she, yes. she was in there. Um, but it was mainly written by Stephen uh, Moffat. Mm-hmm. Um, who obviously uh, well known for kind of Sherlock and, and Doctor Who, and I think it was based on um, sort of a story from his from his father, uh, but just uh, an amazing series. I think it ran from like eighty nine to, to ninety three, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, again, it was like this is your life could be like this, your school could be like this, you could you could be doing this. I thought what was quite good about this was it had a bit of an edge. There are lots of people that used to watch like Children's Hospital, yeah. Children's Hospital. Not was- yeah. Yeah, it was really popular on ITV. I was never that bothered, um, but clearly ITV had um, had had strong drama chops, and it was a bit more edgy than mm. uh, what went on. Um, what was on BBC One? Yeah, no, it was great, and, and, and as you say, spawned uh, amazing careers. And obviously, Dexter Fletcher, his directing career is just stratospheric now. And obviously, Julia Sawala is still a household name now, but I think she's just very much in that vein where she can pick and choose what she wants to do, if anything. I want a press gang reboot where the Gazette gets. Uh, has been turned into a clickbait local news website and gets shut down or something like that. I think that'd be, and Dexter Fletcher can direct that. Yeah, no, and I'm sure he would be absolutely willing to do it on his original ITV salary. <laughs> uh, brilliant. Okay, well, again, talking about gear changes, uh, this is this is a huge one. So please introduce us to your number five. Yeah. So one of the things that I watched in American Import was Star Trek. Original Star Trek used to be on. Uh, on BBC Two, so so watch that. Love Star Trek: Next Generation, um, but the Star Trek spinoff that I really liked, uh, which is my number five, is Star Trek: Deep Space Nine, uh, which was sort of towards the end of the Next Generation. They launched a, a new a new series. Um, this one, if you're not aware of it, is uh, basically the same, except it was set on a space station. Mm-hmm. And it was a space station near a wormhole, which was their uh, trope to to go to the other side of the galaxy and so basically meet new aliens and people that you hadn't really seen before. And it was sort of quite it's quite interesting if you look at the sort of sci-fi series, you know, with 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 the ship-based Star Trek, they obviously go off somewhere. Whereas if you're on a space station, more people will kind of come to you. Yeah. Uh, and this was kind of mid-90s, and a lot of these shows, particularly network television, you know, driven by standalone episodes, which work well in syndication, a very, very like super thin, maybe arc through things, but they didn't even like any of that. Whereas oddly Deep Space Nine, I think probably to mark it out 
but again, quite a big sort of long running story arc. Uh, and it's very Netflix of today. Like I think maybe Deep Space Nine was like 25 years too early and would have mm. worked really well. And some, and it, when you look at what people think of Star Trek, sometimes it's sort of a bit love it or hate it with Deep Space Nine. Some people really, really get it or don't. If you watch it, I mean, it, it gets quite dark. It was quite dark anyway. There's a war in it, which isn't really going the Federation's way. And like historically up to that point, you know, the good guys always won and, you yeah. know, it was always resolved. Uh, I would be so up for a Deep Space Nine reboot. And I think that would definitely fit the the more modern Netflix world. Mm. And it, it Star Trek is is an amazing kind of uh, um, it, it has a certain sort of you know corner of its own kind of history because it's been around for so long and it was groundbreaking. And even you, you mentioned the the first series, I think is is it noted as being the first series in on television where a black actress kissed a white actor. And yeah, you kind of just go first interracial kiss. Also, like it was, it was Desilu Studios, which was like uh, Lucille Ball. A lot of it yeah. came from there. So, yeah. like a really interesting kind of background. The films were absolutely huge as well, even though mm. they contained most of the original cast and possibly some of the later ones possibly shouldn't have. But uh, you know, and then you come, you bring it bang up to date with J.J. Abrams and Simon Pegg, and you know the, the, those those films with Chris Pine, which I, I have to say I do really like. I think they're great. Um, but it's just it it seems to be one of those those shows those formats and those names that kind of keeps coming back and each time it comes back it does quite well. Yeah, it's interesting with New Trek as well. I mean, you've got uh, Paramount Plus, which obviously is sort of one of the second division uh, kind of streaming services, but a lot of that's built around all their successes come from rebooting Star Trek series. Hmm. The Picard series was really yep. good, which is basically a TNG reboot. But the one's actually really good at the moment. If you're not, if you sort of want to get into it and just think, oh God, there's too much Star Trek and I don't know where to start. Uh, Strange New Worlds uh, is a bit of a heart back to sort of episode planet of the week. Hmm. So you can just watch them individually, but it's really clever and funny and um uh, different styles in each episode. I think it's going to be Strange New Worlds is going to be seen as as kind of the height of a lot of Star Trek. I think. All oh, right, brilliant. Well, I will I will look it out because I've not seen any so far. Uh, and one show that I'm definitely going to look out because I wasn't aware of it. So when I got your list, I did a bit of research, um, and I've only watched a two and a half minute trailer, and I'm absolutely hooked. So please do tell us about your number four. Okay, so my number four is a, a TV show called Wanted, uh, which was on Channel 4. I think around two series. Uh, one of my all-time favorite programs, and uh, like you just said there, most people can't, can't remember. It didn't do particularly well. Um, concept was, it's sort of game show concept. Uh, three teams of two uh, had to basically stay hidden for a week whilst a tracker track, well, three trackers tracked each team to try and capture them. If they stayed uh, away from the tracker, they got a certain amount of money an episode, which because it was the 90s was probably like 100 pounds or something <laughs> ridiculous. Um, uh, but if any of the trackers filmed them, then they didn't get the money. They also didn't know that they had been they had been watched. Um, they had to they weren't allowed to be in the same. I'm just remembering from mm. in like the same 10 miles square um, areas so that's kind of keep moving. And there were sort of certain challenges like they had to go and you know, see a penguin every day. So you'd sort of, they'd know roughly where they were going or where the opportunities were. And then it would culminate in a live show where they would have to uh, be in a telephone box. Uh, each team would be in a telephone box. And if they were caught uh, in the live show, then they were out for the week. If they weren't caught, they would carry on 
uh, with the run. And so very similar to like the hunted, you know, hunted mm. now. Mm. Um, but what was great about it, and this is it kind of harks back to some of my delight at, at Noel's house party and, and Saturday night takeaway is it very much pushed the edge of what was a doable in television at the Technology time. Wise, yeah. um, and broadcast from these phone boxes was just that they could kind of keep them in a location. Yeah. I think basically helicopters bouncing microwave links from site to site. There was lots of breakups of uh, live shots from cars and things, lots of losing, stuff and like the episode would be a sort of um a catch-up on the week which they would film themselves on camcorders uh, and then intercut with this with this live show bizarre presentation choices so um ray coax who yes. people are best known from MTV, mtv yes presented the first series and was pretty good if maybe a little bit out of his depth mm. um i think i think ray coax always deserved more than probably he really got but um this didn't transform him into a live entertainment <laughs> star that's for sure <laughs> And then bizarrely, season two was Richard Littlejohn. God knows where oh they just, God. where they chose him. He actually was pretty good and gave everyone a hard time. So the trackers were crap for not finding people or he'd slag off the contestants for being caught. Uh, but what was great about it was, um, and it leads on to one of my, my other things, is about control in television. You know, so hmm. much TV is... Uh, is executed under the control of the producers. Yeah. Uh, and um, I think in series two, some of the contestants actually became trackers because they'd done such a good job. So just it was just very adventurous for Channel 4. Sort of touches a bit on like treasure hunt maybe in the past and you know, using helicopters and getting around and um, very, very sort of adventurous Channel 4 style television. I'm just, it's a shame it never really hit, it kind of hit it, though the concept has been, there's definitely things in the concept that you see in TV today. But yeah, no, brilliant. And, and a great blast in the past, because as I say, I went and watched a couple of trailers just to kind of recap my uh, memory. And uh, yeah, it's kind of one of those, it's it's it's, caught, it's kind of fallen through the floorboards of TV, I would say. Talking about talented men, uh, please give us your number three in your top 10 list. Yeah, so lots of these are sort of older shows. So I thought actually we better bring something kind of bang up today, mm. uh, which is uh, The Bear which I think here we can watch on Disney Plus. Uh, and The Bear is uh, a drama series about a chef who returns to his brother's sort of burger sandwich shop. Um, his brother's died uh, and um, decides to kind of run it. And one of the things I love about drama sometimes is where you don't really understand everything that's going on. Like they sort of, they've dropped it in partway through what happened to the brother? Did he die? Oh, he has died. What did he die of? That's a bit strange. Uh, why is this, this chef, he seemingly was like a, you know, five-star chef at a Michelin star place. And he's kind of gone back home. What's that all about? Bunch of misfits in the kitchen. Uh, just really interesting and 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 different, really well-written, uh, great characters. Uh, season two is out at the moment as we record this. I've just got the last episode to, to watch. And um, there's a, a brilliant episode where it's a flashback to a family Christmas dinner. One thing with the episode, it has amazing cameos, like absolutely amazing people pop up as members of his family. And actually the whole series has got amazing cameos in series two. Um, but there's so much dialogue where they're talking over each other and you cannot really understand what's going on. Uh, and it's very much like a family Christmas. And again, you don't entirely know all the elements and there's there's backstory here that they're sort of hinting at. And I always think that's really brave to to not treat the audience like idiots, mm. um, create something compelling, especially in, in drama, keep it very, very kind of fast moving. Also, I think season one was was filmed 
sort of lockdown reading interview with the one of the creators they were like no they liked it but no one wants to give us any money and so if mm. you watch the first episode it's all shop pretty much in in this um in this sort of sandwich bar uh, then it was a huge hit and so season two is shot uh at a lot of other places they've yeah. they've clearly freed up the cash yes and actually they haven't wasted it like it adds to the adds to the the program particularly sort of widens out some of the background to the characters or the, these characters development brilliant writing amazing performances and really well shot and just kind of shot quite interestingly uh, so definitely recommend if you haven't seen it already is, is get hold of the bear fantastic okay well that takes us on to your number two your your uh, your nearly your favorite show but not quite yeah, so um, I wasn't really well at the beginning of the year. And so I did, I think, my third rewatch of this series uh, at number two is West Wing. Um, it's the Aaron Sorkin uh, presidential drama uh, that I just think is is brilliant television and is the America you wish it could be. That's the <laughs> the best yeah. bit watching it. These, 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 great, these great characters in the White House trying to do what's right for the yeah. country. Um, reaffirms my own political viewpoint even more which is good <laughs> totally talks to me and even the republicans they aren't so bad and you no. know there are good ones in there too um but also not dissimilar to kind of star trek you know network television in america particularly uh loads of episodes you know 20 odd episodes per season i think seven seven seasons of, of the west wing as well um uh, it's a lot of it's a lot of television to make. Mm -hmm. I think what's fascinating with the West Wing is how much of it was written by Aaron Sorkin himself. Uh, even though he had writers working on the show, he knocked out a vast majority of the episodes. If an episode isn't written by Aaron Sorkin, it's because he it had a, like a mini breakdown yeah. or just was, was doing about six episodes at the time and had to give up one to someone else to write, yeah. kind of against his will. Great bunch of characters, uh, good good storylines, great combination of. Uh, real world political kind of knowledge uh, mixed in with drama. Um, some of it doesn't quite age so well. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of you know a lot a lot of television doesn't always age so well. Um, the women characters do not come over brilliantly. And if you you know if you look at it, they're often there to explain what's that, Josh? What does that mean? It's like mm. you're the press secretary. You'd know what that means. But <laughs> um, Donna, Josh's poor assistant in that, literally all she does is explain uh, is is uh, be a vehicle to explain stuff to the to the audience. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, then you had a really interesting bit with you know, Aaron Sorkin uh, leaves his own show that he's created uh, and he leaves kind of in the middle of a cliffhanger. Someone else has to write the end and then a whole new team uh, write the next couple of seasons. And it has a bit of a wobble for a season as they try and work out how the hell to, to yeah. kind of write this show. Um, and it loses a bit of confidence, even though there are some, some cracking episodes there. And then it evolves and um, the, the, the series has a, uh, uh, president Bartlett as, as the as the president, but the, in the last sort of series and a half, uh, it's a primary for the for the the new candidate, and then the the general election, um, and it cha changes the show changes quite a lot in that, but mm. it fits, it gives it something extra, amazing combination of um, of actors that they get to 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 be the candidates. The Democratic candidate is um, Jimmy Schmidt being the Democratic one, and Alan Alder being the the Republican one. Um, which sort of culminates, they do a live episode um, uh, for that series. It had been quite the vogue at the time. ER had had a live episode uh, and they do it on a, a debate night. So basically it's a sort of two-hander between the two of them. 
Uh, and it was always obviously planned that, that the Democratic candidate would win. But Alan Oliver did such a good job as Arnie Vinnick, this Republican candidate. I think there was some thoughts, actually, maybe they could take it in a different direction. In the end, the series kind of came to an end. It was probably uh, of its time. Yeah. Uh, but again, really sort of intelligent, uh, but fun uh, TV, um, very watchable, you know, works here in the UK, even um, though it's not really our political system. Um and it's definitely one of those shows that you can you can rewatch and still still enjoy. Yeah, no, I, I I can only agree entirely with what you're saying. I I loved it. Aaron Sorkin just has that genius touch that whatever show that he's been involved in, you know, it's an Aaron Sorkin show. Um, yes, and he's he's just got that ability. One of my favourites, and if I did my top ten, it would be in there's the newsroom mm. uh, because it's just so brilliantly observed and brilliantly written and i think by this point the newsroom was a few years after west wing he kind of gotten to he gotten used to writing female characters better um and after the newsroom for me is just i think it's i think the narrative arc of the of the characters is, is equally as brilliant as west wing um but yeah no he's just he's just brilliant at what, at what he does in that kind of you know intelligent verbose quick-witted detail-led conversations that he writes just so well there isn't another one that writes as well as him um fantastic we love that so um now we come to your your exalted at the top of the tree as it were your number one show big brother is my my number one choice Amazing. and i'm saying you know i'm really saying big brother like first five years definitely the first three four years um so i remember watching on channel four a program about the first dutch big brother it was a documentary hour long doc explain the series i remember watching that and thinking oh my god this is amazing and at mm. the end they go and if you'd like to appear in the new uh, channel 4 version of this um uh, you know why not um send in send in your thing and away you go so that would have been kind of 99 uh, so 2000 and then it maybe it was mm. the end of 2000 um yeah uh, or 2001 uh, and i just thought this is this is so good and if you watch the first series of big brother they didn't know what they were getting themselves in for. They didn't. They didn't know Not what it was. Whether anybody would watch it. If you watch some of the uh, some of the scenes, they're kind of instantly convinced no one's watching because they're they're sort of boring. However, in the first week, they take all their clothes off, roll around in mud, and print themselves on the walls of the of the house. The whole nation stopped, and, and a judgery internet sort of. Uh, came to a halt because at lunchtime <laughs> we all tried to get real player to work to watch a Craig take on nasty Nick because Nick had done the, the terrible, awful thing of showing some bits of paper to another contestant, which just seems so <laughs> pathetic and rubbish now. So innocent. Really. Um, oddly, the show was doing okay, but hadn't really sort of got huge amounts of attention but nasty nick uh juiced the attention in big brother also i love the spin-off so big brother's little brother i love that you could watch it overnight on e4 you could watch them sleeping you watch them sleeping, sleeping which was yeah. very truman show and i went on big brother's little brother uh, i was such a fan and uh, me derma o'leary and one of the contestants amma playing a quiz overlooking the compound uh, on, on, on a big riser and I remember, and I could see this massive wall of televisions, which obviously were all the camera angles of the show, and they were playing um, volleyball in the garden. So I could see like 30 shots of them playing volleyball in the garden. And in the distance, I could just see this volleyball occasionally like pop above <laughs> uh, the walls. Uh, and I just thought, oh, wow, this is this is amazing. I was so excited to sort of to be in, be in, in their world. Big Brother 
initially in those early seasons was very representative of the UK. You know, these are the kinds of people that are in the UK. First transgender winner, you know, probably the first my main transgender person on television that had done well. Um, it was, was unfortunately coined as a Portuguese in the British press, which is which is yeah. fairly typical of kind of you know reactionary. And I guess it just sort of shows, doesn't it, that you know, particularly at that time, the press did have a real hold on on people or how people were perceived. But um, you know, the, there is a sort of cleansing nature of reality television. Partly, it gets a a lot of people sort of slag it off. But at that point, you do get to know these people, mm. uh, and you're forced to, you know, see you know people of different races or people with different sexualities on television. How do they interact? And you have someone like Jade Goody who go, you know, to amazing reality TV creation. Yeah. Uh, again, like, you know, someone who was not on television, that sort of person, mm. and then was destroyed by it afterwards with um, Celebrity Big Brother and yeah. the, all the Shil Pachetti stuff. And then yeah. sort of, uh, again, sort of liked again and, and, you know, sadly died. Even that was part of her story, you know, yeah. this, this amazing you know, life that, that, she led that we all watched her on TV sort of mm. sort of grow up. But like since then, a lot of reality tellies evolved. Love Island, I think, probably really pushed it on into another direction. Um, and, you know, what, what we see sort of from it all, I think, will be quite fascinating. No, it will. And I think it's um, it's it, it would definitely be in my top 10 just because it had, has such a place within television. I was actually uh, producing The Villa for Sky at this, the same time that the first series of Big Brother came out. And we were more obsessed about Big Brother than we were about creating our own program <laughs> with Jade Goody on, on those series as well. And kind of, you know, I mean, you know, going back to I would say that she's probably almost the classic story of Big Brother. It's kind of, you know, because she shone brightly for like a magnesium strip for a very short amount of time. Um, and then obviously, sadly, kind of almost the perfect end. It's a terrible thing to say, but almost the perfect end because it kind of it put, puts her into legendary status because obviously really? she didn't survive for very much long after that. Um, in terms of kind of reality, if, if you're terming it reality, because I think that gets thrown around quite a lot, it is absolutely the king. It was, you know, the the format that really kind of, you know, slam dunked into UK television, obviously, and you know, end them all at the time, and just, you know, really kind of became a, a kind of an appointment to view. And you're right, you know, there's no other program that anybody would sit and watch contestants asleep, but you know, we did. Uh, but also, it showed that that thing about, uh, you know, I always think that um, real people go on reality television to become famous, and famous people go on reality telly to become real, uh, and. <laughs> <laughs> definitely sort of Les Dennis later on and, and, and people sort of they desperate to show this different side which can yeah. work for them and work yeah. against them. Yeah. Uh but they sort of in, in, invented that that too, which obviously yeah. then Channel Four uh, jumped on and then every other show in the world uh, did later on. Well listen, that is an absolutely tremendous top ten. So a question I'm asking everybody, how how difficult or easy was it? It was quite hard. I mean, and I was thinking today, like, how could I not put Don't Get Your Toothbrush and The Big Breakfast in there, which were like huge parts of yeah. uh, of my life. Okay, so and um, just very finally, where can where can people find you and and uh, absorb some of your work? Uh, yep. So you can listen to me on the media podcast, get it wherever you get your podcasts or go to the media podcast.com. Um, uh, I'm on Twitter or X or whatever Elon Musk is calling it. Um, I am at Matt on there, uh, but I think I'm mainly going to live probably on Instagram and threads now uh, uh, at Matt Deegan live, Matt Deegan live. That's where you can find me. Thanks. Thanks for having me on.
See, I told you it was a good one, funny, insightful, clever, and as far as I'm concerned, a textbook example of a top 10. Hope you enjoyed it. Well, that's it for this episode, but keep a lookout for another top 10 trawl next week. But for now, it's goodbye from me and goodbye from him. My top 10 TV podcast is a Euron Mute original production. 